Hello, my lovely theater people. I'm so glad that you're back for the second episode since we came back. Unfortunately, Lee, my very brand new and lovely co-host, has been crazy swamped this month. Um, If you don't already know, Lee and their friend Eliza, who are on the board for First Kiss Theater Company, our sponsor for this podcast. Uh, They put up their one-woman show at the tank just a little while ago from when I'm recording this. Um, So it has been up and down all over the place insane for Lee this month. So we're going to give them a little pass for October, and they will be back to greet you all once more in November. Okay. So now, let's get into some announcements. All right, folks. So if you don't already know, the submissions for uh, things coming up next year, in the spring mostly, but a little bit in the winter too, are opening everywhere. Everywhere. Uh, The Bricks and Terabang uh, Festival is still open. I know Lee mentioned that last episode. That is still going strong. I highly encourage you to apply. I just sent my application in yesterday. It's a great opportunity. And if you would like to hear more about some submission opportunities, please let me know. Um, I used to do a little series on my TikTok about it. And then like most things that happened to me, it fell by the wayside when work got crazy. Um, But if you would like me to revive that, please let me know. I always want to support other emerging playwrights by helping them find places to get their work out there. In theater news, um, in case you either don't pay much attention to it or you live under a rock, um, a lot has happened in theater news this month. First off, let's talk about the Patti LuPone thing. So Patti LuPone uh, forfeited her equity card. And if you don't know what that means, that's her card for the Actors Union, which means that she could not, you can't be on Broadway without your Actors Union card. Uh, So we will not be seeing Patty grace the Broadway stages, um, maybe ever again. We'll have to see how that plays out. That was a pretty big thing uh, that went off on the internet this past month. Another very big thing that happened at a production of Hades Town. Now, as a disabled theater artist, this is something that greatly, um, greatly affected me. So there are a lot of assistive devices that you can use in a Broadway theater if you're disabled, such as if you're deaf or blind or have another disability, to better understand the play or the musical that you are watching. And a person whose name I'm not gonna, you know, give her more, I don't want haters to potentially i know all of y'all are great but just in case i'm not gonna mention her name uh but a very nice blind and deaf woman was trying to enjoy production of hades town and was using an assistive device that apparently to uh uh lillian who plays hermes uh now thought was a phone and thought was illegally recording the performance and lillian called this woman out in front of the whole theater for recording the performance, which is obviously not what was happening. And this has sparked a whole big debate in theater this month about accessibility, which is, again, as you probably all know, something very, very important to me. So if you want to hear more about that, there are plenty of Instagram accounts uh, that are talking about theater accessibility. There's also plenty of TikTok accounts. 
mine. If you also follow Grace Walker that I've had on the podcast, she uh, is also a disabled um, theater artist. She's talked about this. Uh, So many uh, Broadway body positivity on TikTok has also talked about this and did a great video on it. So if you want to learn more, I highly suggest you go to those avenues and learn more. But that's it for theater news this month. As for shows that are coming up, well, 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 I have a very big surprise for you. The show we're talking about in this episode, Cope and Wonder by Lily Welsh, is going to be having a performance. So if you guys like what you hear on this episode, you can potentially go and see the performance. The performance of Cope in Wonder will be taking place in New York City. So unfortunately, if you don't live in the area, you probably won't be able to see it in person. But if you do, it is on October 30th at 6 p.m. Admission is free. It's at the New York City Center in Studio 5. Let me say that one more time. October 30th, 6 p.m. in New York City Center, Studio 5. Admission is free completely. So if you live in New York City or in that kind of area, I highly suggest you go and see it. Uh, The release date for this episode, I believe, is October 28th. So it's happening in two days, two days. So make those plans, grab a buddy and go see this show. Alrighty, without further ado, let's get into the dramaturgy. Lily Welsh is a New York-based playwright and actor. She is a graduate of Sarah Lawrence College, where she received her BA in liberal arts. She is an alumnus of the British American Drama Academy, or BADA, where she was a part of their fall 2019 cohort. She is also the 2021 recipient of the David Lindsay Abair Award. Here is a summary of Cope and Wonder from New Play Exchange. Cope and Wonder is an adaptation of the ballet Coppelia, viewed through the lens of Jewish spirituality and queer identity, featuring a mad scientist, a robotic burlesque number, a sad and joyful dance party, a bloody sacrifice, and the poetry of Lewis Carroll and Oscar Wilde. Cope and Wonder is a loose interpretation of the ballet Coppelia, which is a ballet with music written by Leo de Libes. Pardon my French. (laughs) This comic ballet was first performed in 1870 with choreography by Arthur Saint-Léon. The ballet itself is an interpretation of E.T.A. Hoffman's short story, Der Sandman, which is German. (laughs) You couldn't tell. The general plot of Cabellia revolves around a doctor, Dr. Capellius, who has made a life-size dancing doll so lifelike that a local boy named Franz falls in love with it. You know, despite the fact that he already has a girlfriend, Swanhilda. Shenanigans ensue when Swanhilda and her friends decide to investigate this doll, not knowing that Franz is also sneaking about. It turns out the good Dr. Capellius wants to bring his life-size doll to real life, but to do so, he needs a human sacrifice. The doctor attempts to use Franz for this, but is unaware that Swanhilda is still hidden around the uh, the house, and she pretends to be the doll come to life in order to save Franz. 
This works, and the ballet ends with Swanhilda and Franz getting married under a new town bell, and Dr. Capellius being paid off to essentially leave them alone. We will see later how this play drastically changes the ending of this story for the better, in my opinion. This play also delves into some superstitions. Hilda, the main character, is said to be Jewish from the start of the play and uses what she calls a Jewish superstition to test if her and her boyfriend, Frank, are soulmates. This ritual is taken directly from the ballet. Swan Hilda in the ballet takes an ear of wheat and shakes it by her ear. The superstition goes that if it rattles or like rings like a bell, your lover truly loves you, but it does not rattle for Swan Hilda. This is mirrored in the play where Hilda, unable to find wheat, shakes a lavender stalk by her and Frank's ears, and like their counterparts in the ballet, they hear nothing. This superstition seems to have no basis in any actual culture that I can find. In fact, it seems to have originated from the ballet, or perhaps the short story that it's based on. Therefore, I believe Welsh gives the superstition some much-needed context by including it as a Jewish superstition. But let's elaborate on some of the actual Jewish traditions and stories mentioned in this play, yes? The main one we need to talk about is that of the golem. Now, a golem in Jewish culture is a creature made of mud, clay, or something similar that is used to protect a community from harm. This creature is brought to life through a piece of paper with the name of God on it shoved into its mouth or written in blood on its forehead. In most stories, this creature is created by a rabbi or someone else with a close relationship to Judaism or to God. The character of Alice, i.e. the life-size doll in the play version that we're talking about, is portrayed to be similar to a golem. Dr. Capellius attempts to use both methods of bringing a golem to life to give life to Alice, but neither work. As the reader, I assumed this was because Dr. Capellius is attempting to appropriate this story of the golem as a non-Jewish person. We learn later in the play that Dr. Capellius is not Jewish and is even a little anti-Semitic, so I can't imagine a Jewish practice would work for him if he's like that, frankly. This play also takes the robotic nature, the golemic if that's a word, <laughs> nature, of the life-size doll Alice and makes it a striking metaphor for the idealized femininity and the controlling nature of the patriarchy in a young woman's sexuality and perception of herself. Dr. Capellius, just like in the ballet, is in love with his creation, but instead of wanting her to become her own person, he wants her to come alive for his own selfish, mainly sexual reasons. Therefore, continuing to see her as an object, despite the fact that in this scenario, she would have a soul. However, in the play, Alice seems to already have her own sense of self before she officially even has whatever you would call a soul. So despite Dr. Capellius's attempts to own her, he simply can't because she's a person. All right. Transition to poetry. There are two poems included in this play that are of note, one by Lewis Carroll and one by Oscar Wilde. One common thread between these two artists is that people in their time speculated on their sexual desires. Oscar Wilde, as we know, was a queer person and he was prosecuted for it. The poem that Alice recites in the play, The Ballad of Reading Gowl, is written about Wilde's experience seeing a man executed while he was in prison. 
There are heavy queer themes in this play, and Hildy is stated early on to be bisexual, so this isn't unintentional. Before this recitation, however, Alice performs a poem by Lewis Carroll called Mock Turtle Song from Alice in Wonderland. This poem, typical of Carol, is very nonsensical and maybe even a little creepy. Much like Carol himself must have been because it was speculated that he was a pedophile. Yeah. Read the sexuality section of his Wikipedia to be more than a little surprised. Anyways, it speaks volumes about Dr. Capellius's character in the play that he states he much prefers the poem by Carol, and he wants to have a relationship with a life-size doll he made that is presumably no more than 18 years old which I assume the general age of Alice, uh, because Hildy and her cohorts are stated to be waiting for college acceptances, so they are 17 or 18 years old. So, you know, just a little something to consider as you read, watch, and or learn about this play. Uh, Dr. Capellius is a creep. Finally, I cannot end this dramaturgy section without mentioning the memes. This play makes many references to pop culture, memes, and music that Gen Z and young millennials will recall from our many days surfing Tumblr and Reddit, finding the most fun and ridiculous things that we could. Y'all remember dabbing? The chorus of yeet as we threw things into a trash can from too far away? Yeah, this play has got all of those nostalgic references and more that give the play a distinctly youthful and playful feeling. All right, and now it's time for our reading portion. Erin Proctor, our beloved actor and also playwright, is back to read a monologue as the main character of Hildy. But first, as usual, some ads. And now, Erin Proctor reading a monologue from Cope in Wonder. Once there was a traveler on his way to make his fortune. The traveler came upon an inn, but he had no money to pay for rooms. The traveler begged the innkeeper to let him stay, promising to pay the innkeeper when he made his fortune. The innkeeper let him stay. The traveler stayed the night and had an egg for breakfast before leaving. The traveler made his fortune and went back to the inn a year later to pay his bill. The innkeeper gave the traveler an obscenely expensive bill, claiming that if he had not eaten egg for breakfast, the egg would have become a chicken who would have laid eggs and so on. The traveler told the innkeeper to meet him at the courthouse to settle the matter in the morning. A maid nearby overheard this and made a plan. The traveler and the innkeeper stood before the court when the maid ran in with the bag of roasted chestnuts claiming that they were to be planted behind the inn. We cannot plant roasted chestnuts. They won't grow, said the innkeeper. And a cooked egg won't hatch, said the maid. Thank you so much, Erin, for that wonderful performance. If you would like to contact Erin with professional inquiries, her contact information can be found in the show notes of this episode. And now, the discussion section with playwright Lily Welsh. Here with us today is the playwright of this awesome play, Lily Welsh. Hey! I'm sure super, yeah, I'm sure you're all super excited to hear this discussion section. Uh, I already read you her bio in the dramaturgy, so uh, I'm not going to do that again. Oh, so here she is. Hey. Hi! It's... It's so nice to talk to you. How have you been? What are you up to? 
Hi, it's so nice to talk to you. I'm so excited about this. Um, yeah, I, I've been up to a lot because I work a lot in theater, just doing mm -hmm. theater -y theater stuff. Like, um, mm -hmm. yeah, I have a reading coming up. I think we're already plugging that later. But I, and uh, yeah, I just I've been doing my doing my thing, doing my doing my living in the city, trying to make money from the arts thing. I'm mostly just excited to be here. I've, you know, I've been a fan of the show since you told me that you were going to make a podcast and I wanted to be on it <laughs> basically that time. But I was, I think a junior in college and I was like, yeah. this, is a, this is a podcast for real playwrights and I am a stack of cats in a trench coat. So. Oh yes, of course. <laughs> yeah, a real playwright. Listen, I've been telling uh, more than one person who's asked me weirdly in the past month, like, I don't feel like I can call myself a playwright. No, if you've written a play, I don't care if no one else has ever read it. You're a playwright. You wrote a play. Absolutely. So uh, you are a real playwright, and you were a real playwright back then, too. Uh, you just have more confidence in yourself now. That's the only yeah. difference. <laughs> exactly. Oh, and speaking you. of confidence and stuff, yeah. oh, I love you, too. This is the um, – actually, this is the first play of yours that I really read and that mm -hmm. I saw, and I actually did the dramaturgy for it when we did it yeah. at Sarah Lawrence. Yeah, um, but the yes, play has did. changed. Yeah, the play has changed a lot since that performance. The play has changed it a does. lot. I would argue for the better. You've done a great job on this newest draft. Um, but just for the audience who has like no idea except for the dramaturgy section of what this play is about, like what inspired you to write this story? Oh, it is a super weird roundabout story because it's also kind of about my inception as a playwright, because this is my first play I've ever mm -hmm. written uh, back in sophomore year of college. And that kind of happened because I was taking a hangover nap in my Don's office. Mm -hmm. Shouts to Dave. And I woke up <laughs> and uh, he was there. <laughs> and, and he was like, you good? <laughs> and I was like, probably not. <laughs> And he said, well, uh, well, I mean, you should find better ways to occupy your time. You know, we're putting in a new outdoor theater space at Sarah Lawrence, which is now the Remy, I think, theater. I think that's what they call it, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Too, I don't know, it's just the outdoor theater. But I don't um, go there anymore. <laughs> me neither. I don't know. Uh, oops, we graduated. Oops. Um and, uh, yeah, and so he told me I should put on a show for that, and he asked me if I had any ideas, and I was like, no, <laughs> and then I went home, and I thought about it, and I thought, oh, I could do, like, a dance piece, because I, I do dance, I have friends who do mm -hmm. dance, I could just get my friends together, and we'll dance, want to know it would be cool if there was, like, a through plot, like, a very flimsy through plot connecting all the dances, and then I made a playlist, and then three days later, I had a 30-page script beginning middle and end and I was like how did this happen and I showed it to Dave and he was like put this on and I did and I got you to be dramaturge and um I one of my best friends uh like heard that I was doing it and she came up to me and was like I want to direct it and they gave us the space and uh, a bunch of people came I, did, I was like literally like pacing around it was like my dad and my best friend and like the cast and I was just pacing around the, the theater 
freaking out like no one's going to come and we ended up not having enough chairs and having people sit on the floor it was so it was like mm-hmm. one of the most amazing experiences I think of my life and then I immediately ran to rehearsal with you for the show we were acting in together yes oh my god yeah we had to play Irish people but yes. <laughs> with bad accents but um so this play was inspired by a hangover nap weirdly yes. fitting weirdly fitting I think yeah um because that's the audience Wednesday <laughs> Yeah. Oh, it was a Wednesday too. Oh my yeah. God. Get your. Oh my God. None. None of us have our crap together when we're that age. So it's okay. It's okay. No one has their crap together at twenty-one. But. Uh, well, I was but you do have your crap together now. Oh, you're yeah. nineteen. Oh, woman. Oh, woman. Well, you're not nineteen now. I you have your crap together a little better. And yeah, I you've do. written I, what? What number draft is this? This current. Uh, this is like draft. Made? 17 or something I don't know it's gone through a lot of inceptions I think the play that ended up going on that first staged reading at Sarah Lawrence was like draft three or four and then by the time it was produced as a full length like full production by the Sarah Lawrence main stage that was like Mm -hmm. draft nine and Mm -hmm. now it's been a year a little over a year since I graduated and I've been working on this play with like both of my two at least two out of three of my residencies. And mm-hmm. since then it's now on like, yeah, 13 to 17. I lost track. They keep on telling me to add stuff because they like it. And now it's like probably a two act. <laughs> oh yeah, no, it's definitely a full length two act play. Like there's yeah. no question about that. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that you added a lot of things that um, connected this play more to what your original idea was, which mm-hmm. like it, in the first draft, it was obvious that there was this connection to Judaism because you yourself yeah. are a Jewish playwright. Mm-hmm. Um, but now it's very evident because there's Jewish stories at the beginning mm-hmm. of a lot of the scenes told by the ensemble and the connection of the golem to the character mm-hmm. of Alice is a lot more clear. So my question about that is what about the ballet Coppelia made you go, I'm going to make this Jewish. What, how did we get there? Honestly, I still don't know. I So my knee-jerk reaction back in that original conversation with Don Dave um, mm-hmm. was he asked me, if you could write a play, what could it be? And the first thing that I said was maybe a modern adaptation of Capellia because it's a ballet that I grew up with. I grew up as a ballet dancer. And I always, you know, that was just an idea that had popped into my head, not even that long before this conversation. And I thought, oh, this could be an interesting thing to do when I'm older or after I finish my abroad program, when I'm like a more put together artist and know what I'm doing, because I'm not smart enough as is to write a play. No, girl, none of us know what we're doing. Don't even... I found that out and I was like, oh, I, I don't have to know what I'm doing to do this. Uh, and I, so I ended up writing, writing this play um, following most of the major story beats of the ballet. You know, girl and a boy are together. He tries to cheat on her with a doll. She finds out there's a mad scientist there. It's a very weird play, but I love it. Um, mm. And as I was writing it, I started... Um, I started putting a lot of myself into it, not just Hildy, the main character, although she does share a lot, a lot of dominant traits with me. I wouldn't say that she, like, if you look at the nuances, we're very different people, but like she does have the dominant traits of being bisexual and being Jewish and being generally quirky. 
uh, and mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, but as I was putting more of myself into it and being more self-referential in my life, it kind of became this thing where I kind of realized that I can't, like everything I do, not just as a writer, but I everything the way I breathe is I breathe as a Jewish woman. I make breakfast as a Jewish woman. And apparently I write a play as a Jewish woman. And there was absolutely no way I could disconnect this story with, with all this wild stuff, with all this stuff that came from my own life, which is growing up hearing Jewish folk tales and hearing it in synagogue and hearing it in this, like hearing it from the children's books that my great uncle would have delivered to our house every week for my dad to read to my brother and me. Like there was nothing I could really do to separate that, especially with a play that ended up being such a reflection of my soul, in a in a cheesy mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, that makes complete sense. Like I think a lot of us playwrights realize that mm-hmm. as we continue on, whether we write more plays or write the same play yeah. again and again until it's perfect or mm-hmm. close to perfect as it'll ever get, we discover that um, there's this thing we can't separate from the play that is truly that is just solely us like everyone everyone knows I'm disabled because I won't shut up about it and almost all my plays deal with that because I can't not talk about it when it became such a huge part of my my life and and who I am as a person uh so I get that and that makes a lot of sense and now I'm like oh my god I can't believe I didn't think of that when I wrote that question down um, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it is roundabout because, like, Capellia, objectively, Capellia and Judaism have nothing to do with each other. I'm pretty sure Capellia is like Italian or Swedish or something, like Northern European or something. It's um, the original story was German, um, but the yeah. ballet is French. Yeah, so it, it doesn't have a lot to do with Judaism, unfortunately, because no. everything is great with Judaism. But uh, <laughs> but the thing that does connect it all is just that I was a ballet kid and I am Jewish and that's the connection. That's the only thing it has to there do with each other, but it's enough. But yeah, that's all you need really, especially because like I said, in this latest draft, the connection just, it, it's there. It makes a lot more like, it makes a lot more sense. Honestly, it just makes yeah. a lot more sense now. Not that it didn't before, but now it's mm-hmm. like, it's very yeah, well, clear that you did a lot of work to make that connection strong. Yeah, just it, so. it fits so easily, you know, with the with the what I was exploring with, you know, Alice and her soul and whether mm-hmm. she had one to begin with or whether it's given to her, whether she chooses to have one. It fits so well into mm-hmm. the ideas of golems, the folklore around uh, bodily autonomy within the Midrash. It works so well mm-hmm. with um, the Jewish idea that we that humans are different from animals because we have two souls, one that we choose to have. It, like it just it worked, oh. and it, like okay. it's like so that last bit I didn't know. Yeah, yeah, no, it's really interesting. Like, yeah, I love that, and that does that makes a lot of sense in context. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Great. <laughs> And going back to some identity stuff, you did mention that Hildy does share a lot of uh, big, like, capital T traits with you. Um, And one of those is is your sexuality. Uh, Where you're both bisexual and proud women. Um, And much like me, um, we both, well, we both in our plays uh, 
put tend to put sapphic uh things in the forefront because it's a big part of who we are and i love that you made this story sapphic without necessarily completely demonizing the character of frank because i read earlier drafts this play where frank actually died y'all like he used to be dead at the end of the play he's not dead anymore so yeah so in the end what inspired you to make this story a capital g gay uh I don't know it's uh it, it's one of the first things that was uh, it's been there since the very very beginning first draft that Hildy yeah. and Alice end up together but as as it was in my very first draft they didn't interact until the very end and then there's the time skip which is still present mm-hmm. um where it's five years later and it's just kind of assumed that they got closer as people over those five years but I didn't actually write that because I didn't know what I was doing mm. And now I do. And I realized kind of the emotional through of the piece is these two people finding each other. So I mm-hmm. started having uh, these ideas to get them, find a way to have them interact without them, you know, physically meeting until I wanted them to. So that's how I came up with the idea to have them be connected through their dreams. And, mm-hmm. and it, and once I, started writing these two characters, these two personalities kind of bouncing off each other. Like the chemistry was electric. Like, I don't know, like, Mm. you know, one of my favorite scenes that I've ever written is, um, you know, they're, uh, uh, Hildy, them playing 20 questions and, uh, Hildy's being like, Oh, what's your favorite color? And Alice is like black. And she's like, that's not a color. That's a shade. And he's like, midnight blue. Like, Mm -hmm. That yeah, is a very cute scene. Yeah, no, they're just they're just cute, and they like, I like they feel I, I feel like them being soulmates as characters works because it, if they were real people, I think that they would be soulmates. Like that's how I, the way I wrote each of their personalities, they just mm-hmm. mesh together so perfectly, and mm-hmm. there was no avoiding them getting together. I just had to mm-hmm. you know make other people understand that these two are perfect for each other yeah which you really do with the uh concept of the dream world and Mm -hmm. as a resident um lover of weird theater things i love the use of projections in that because i like making projections they're bad but i like making them so uh, (laughs) i always love it when i see plays have that and then uh yeah i do that too in my plays but i really loved how you used it um and speaking of back to the kind of end of that statement I made about Frank. He doesn't die oh, anymore. Fred. 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 Oh my God. Why'd I call him Frank? Oh, because Franz, because Franz, Franz. is the name yeah. of the character in the play. Yes. I'm yeah, a big no, dummy. Um, Fred. Yes. Fred. He doesn't die anymore. No. What led you to make that decision to save his sorry white boy ass? <laughs> People, like, people, um, every time I put this forward in a workshop, people were like, we love Fred, he's hilarious, I don't think, like, his death does kind of come out of nowhere, also, like, he's a little too much of an asshole, a little too much, like, we don't understand why Hildy was dating him in the first place, so, like, 
one of my biggest things with every single draft, basically since I first got back, any criticism about Fred was making Fred everyone's favorite character. So I worked very hard to make this idiot likable mm-hmm. and fun. And I ended up just kind of saving his butt mm-hmm. and uh, giving him a fun little, uh, a fun, his, come up because like when you think about it like being a a shitty 17 year old who like tries to cheat on your girlfriend does not necessarily warrant death unless you you ask the 16 year old who got cheated on um but it doesn't necessarily warrant death in in, in that context so I think he gets enough comeuppance having to be a birthday party clown yeah oh yeah that's the epilogue I loved that addition that yeah. now he is a birthday party clown. Um, and also, Hildy breaks up with his ass. So I think yeah. that's pretty good, too. You know what? He got yeah, no, I very much uh, like the line. Like, isn't that... You're breaking up with me as I'm being stabbed? That's insult to literal injury. And she's like, bruh, shut the fuck up. <laughs> yeah, he tried to cheat on me with a sex doll, dude. Yeah. And he's like, you know what? Never mind. You're right. Uh, I'm sorry. So... I did like that you made him, you made him a little more likable. I still personally, maybe it's because I have met a version of Fred one too many times in my life. Um, I still don't like him, but I I I wouldn't want to be his friend, but like, I I find him hilarious. I I find him very true. Shitty 17 year old boy. Yeah. No, as a teacher. Yeah, he is like you. You you look at him and you're like, you're a dumbass. But like, you know, they're gonna grow out of it because they're 17, and all 17 year olds are idiots. Sorry to any 17 year olds listening to this. Um, No, you should don't worry. That is ashamed for being an idiot. (laughs) We all grow out of it. Um, Listen, I just turned 26. Not just what the hell am I, I? What the hell am I on? I turned 26 in January. I'm on sickness. I'm very sick right now. Sorry if my voice sounds weird. Um, but um, I, it, you could almost feel it. I swear to God. When you're like 25, 26, you feel it. Like, oh, my brain's done now. My brain's done cooking. I'm still a little bit of an idiot, but I'm a lot less of an idiot than I was when I was Oh, 20. man, I am excited for that. Yeah. Get excited for the little timer that says your brain is done cooking. Yeah. And, I got one like a year and a half. <laughs> Yeah, something. Oh my God, you're so young. I sometimes forget how young you are, girl. Okay. Well, (laughs) speaking of Fred being weird, uh, Fred is uh, a a meme lord a little bit. He's a little bit of a meme lord, um, which contributes to the very like unique flair to the musical and aesthetic choices you make in this play. Um, And did you have an image for what you wanted the world to look and sound like when you started writing? Did you find it along the way? Uh, kind of. Every time I wrote a draft, I kind of ha- like pictured it at a different theater at Sarah Lawrence. So I originally pictured it for the outdoor Remy theater. Mm-hmm. And then it was going to be in the canon pre-pandemic. So I pictured it for that. And then they ended up, you know, doing what they did with the, the things. You, you saw the production with the, that actually. I did, yes. It was pretty great. But mm-hmm. um but that like really blew me away and they took a lot of, and design wise, they took a lot of, um, they took, uh, like I collaborated a lot with the designers and it ended up being really beautiful. But nowadays when people ask me what I picture, I say Hal's moving castle. Cause, <laughs> cause the thing is, the thing with this play is that yes, there are two worlds. There's the human world and the dream world. 
And the way it kind of works is the dream world, like the way it does in Hell's Moving Castle, where there is a, definitely a different separation of worlds where magic is more of a thing. But the human world isn't that normal either. <laughs> there are wizards running around. Exactly. Yeah, and in this, you know, human world, there's mad scientists running around and they can literally bring dolls to life. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that's not all that normal. Um, but it also, like, I, I think I described it. I'm going to look at my notes. I described it in the dramaturgy near the end as um, uh, um, Gen Z and young millennials will recall from our many days surfing Tumblr and Reddit, finding the most ridiculous things we could. Yeah. That's just the vibe. It is, yeah, it is like it is the vibe. It's very much yes. my sense of humor, and I grew up like I'm like an el- I'm an elder Gen Z. Like I feel like hanging out with you as a, mm-hmm. uh, as like a millennial made me like is what really made me like firmly say I am Gen Z. I am not a millennial because like, <laughs> we are very different people generation wise. Yeah, like oh, even yeah. though we're only like three years apart, but three years um, apart, yeah. So I put a lot of my sense of humor in it and I kind of grew up in that Tumblr cringe era. That's like how I was formed. And every now and then I get the note like, you know, this, are you sure you want to date this show this much with all these like memes and references that like are go so past you literally say, and like someone says out loud that the year is is 2019. And I was like, yes, I want this to be so dated. I want this to be clueless. Yeah, no, I mean, there's a certain charm to shows that know their era and claim it, you know? I've had, I think I had, I think it was Alyssa Haddad's play that I had on a few seasons ago, um, took place, like, in the 2000s, and it was very much of the 2000s, the music, the the lip gloss, the how they talked, and there's something delicious about that. So I think there's absolutely nothing wrong with quote-unquote dating it. Yeah. They're giving us context. Yeah, exactly. And how much? And how many totally future Pulitzer Prize-winning plays reference Vine? Oh my God! Wow. I mean, maybe they should reference Vine. They honestly. should. They should. They would be so much less boring. <laughs> Rip Vine. But yeah, no, I think it's. I like that they say it's 2019. We're gonna dab. We're gonna say yeet. And we're gonna, you know, play Dr. Worm and be weird. We're gonna be weird. But like a special Very brand weird. of 2019 pre-pandemic weird. Yes, no, that you know? that's also a thing. Like, cause like 2019, that was like right before the pandemic. It's such a lightning in yes. a bottle moment where we had no idea what was going to happen to us. It was just like the oh, last yeah. moment that any of us felt alive. So but, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that, I mean there's a very dark thought of oh yeah but I mean sorry to take it to a dark place but like (laughs) yeah no I think a lot of the people our age the last time we really felt like youthful was 2019 yeah so like that also the era adds even more to the very youthful energy that Mm -hmm. the script has which is one of the reasons why even though it deals with some very serious things it's not a really quote-unquote serious play yeah yeah, like, not no, that exactly. like. Oh yeah, like complimentary. I, I took, oh, I took it as a compliment, honey, because that's Good. exactly okay. what I was going for. Like, you know, making all these like it has some pretty strong themes about physical autonomy, mm-hmm. bodily autonomy, mental autonomy, um, Judaism, okay. spirituality, mm-hmm. anxiety, 
uh, infantilization, uh, even yeah. like undertones of like sexual assault. Like, there, there's some dark yeah. shit in that play, but it's also very accessible. I feel. Yes. Yeah. I mean, because you're not. I think the trap that a lot of people fall into when discussing hard topics like these is the doom and gloom trap, um, mm-hmm. where if we're talking about these things, this is what the play is about. But that's yeah. not what Cope and Wonder is about. It's not. It just. Exactly. It's just part of it. Yeah. Yeah. It's because it, I think Cope and, like Cope and Wonder, and that's part of the reason I named it that is that you kind of have to sit in all like mm-hmm. all the multifacets of life. Like you got to, you just got to deal with how weird and wonderful everything can be. Like the worst day of your life, and what or the best day of your life. There's probably going to be a day after, so you kind of have to roll with the punches. So yeah. there's, so there, so like there's dark things, really dark, awful things that happen, but there's also really amazing, wonderful things and they could happen in the same hour. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. The variance of, and, yeah. and chaos of yeah. being a human being. Ugh. I'm exhausted just saying it, but it is a beautiful thing. It is a very beautiful thing to try and capture in a script. And on that note, my last question for you, Lily, is one that I forgot to ask Lee last episode, but I need to remember because it's a very integral part of this discussion section. And that is, what do you want an audience to get out of seeing or reading your play? I want them to get that life can be, life can be fun, even when it's terrible. Like when terrible things are happening, when you are indentured to a mad scientist who's trying to make you come to life for sex reasons, or if you're in a shitty relationship with a guy who wants to cheat on you with that said sex doll, or (laughs) if you got drunk at a party and started a throw up chain, which is a thing that I wrote, (laughs) like there can still be Uh... really magical, beautiful things that happen. And you can still find these genuine connections with other people. You can still like see and appreciate beauty. You can still have so much, so much fun. You can like have a giant dance party immediately after the vomit chain. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, exactly. No. And I love that. I think we do need a more positive works of art right now because it's been a lot of, it's, it's been a lot of doom and gloom. Hasn't it for the past two years? Ooh, we need yes. some more positive work. Yeah, we yeah. need some more positive work out there that says, hey, guys, yeah. maybe not everything is shit. Yeah. Maybe some things are still good. And we should yeah. remember that. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> All right. I love that note. That's the perfect note to end this on, I think. So, yes, quite the one so, battery. Oh my oh my god, okay. But before you go, Lily, plug your socials, plug whatever okay. you want to plug, quick uh, for the computer follow, guys. Follow me, follow me on Instagram at, at Lily underscore Welsh2. That's L-I-L-Y underscore W-E-L-S-H2. There's so many other ways to spell it. Uh and uh check me out on New Play Exchange. I'm on that too. I have a website, I don't update it, it's so out of date, but that's just lilywelsh.com. And uh yeah, and oh, and I have a reading going on at New York City Center on October 30th, Studio 5, 6.30. It is free. Oh, 6.30. Okay, I said 6. Good. I'm glad oh. you said that. Okay, yeah. 6.30. Well, come at 6, that's probably better. <laughs> so if you're in the New York City area, you heard it here. Go take a look. Take a gander at Cope and Wonder. And then if you like it, go to New Play Exchange and read the script. 
Maybe, maybe call Lily and say you want to produce it. I don't know. Yeah, please. I'm just saying. I want that from maybe, and, and then look at my new then look at my new play exchange and then call me. So um <laughs> anyways. All right. So it's been lovely talking to you, Lily. And as uh we do now, we're gonna play our next guessing game for our next guest on our Instagram. You can DM me if you have a guess. Um so far we're recording this <laughs> Wednesday before it airs. Uh yeah, sorry. Um, and the only person to guess the correct place so far has been my mom. So, um, good try, everyone. Uh, Jill beat you. Um, so someone try and beat Jill next week, the uh, next week, next month, and we'll see. We'll see if they can do it. All righty, folks. I love you all, and we will see you next month with our next installment, which Lee will be back for. Don't Woo. worry, they're gonna come back. All right. Bye. Bye.